Father, thank you for your love for us. Uh, We are dependent on you as evidenced in the uh, title to this class, Church History for Dummies. We can be idiots who choose sin over you and try to live according to our own wisdom. So we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit tonight to help us. We want to look back over church history and see what our brothers and sisters in Christ did well learn from their mistakes, and then we want to change. And so we ask you to help us by your spirit. We humble ourselves before you tonight and say, uh, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue tonight again uh, looking at the Apostolic Fathers. But before we start, I need to clarify and correct something before we begin. Last week, uh, a question was asked about the uh, Ebionites. And their relationship to the Docetists that we looked at last week. And I misspoke and said that the Ebionites and the Docetists were closely related. And as soon as I said it, I thought, that doesn't sound right. Uh, The Ebionites are sometimes linked with the Judaizers that we looked at. Did you guys get the email I sent you? Okay, good. I went home right away and was like, that didn't sound right. And I've got to make sure I let Don know. The Ebionites are sometimes linked linked with the Judaizers that we've been looking at several times and not with the Docetists. So since we're talking about them, who were the Ebionites? They were a heretical group of Jewish people who were very much like the Judaizers, which is why they're often linked with them. It's speculated that they kind of cropped up in the first century, most likely after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then by the middle of the 400s, they're extinct and they're kind of removed from the scene of church history. Most of what we know from them comes from one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus. He's the first person to use the term Ebionites in print around 190 AD. Uh, their name most likely comes from the Hebrew word for poor. Hippolytus and Origen would both later refute them in their writings. The Ebionites viewed Jesus as a prophet, but that's all that he was. They denied his preexistence. They denied that Jesus was the eternal Son of God. They denied his deity. They were all for the humanity of Jesus, just not his deity. So Eusebius, who was one of the first church historians, writing in 325 A.D., described the Ebionite heresy this way. He said, The adherents of what is known as the Ebionite heresy assert that Christ was the son of Joseph and Mary and regard him as no more than a man. They view Jesus as just simply a man. Contrary to the Docetists who said that Jesus just appeared to be human, the, the Ebionites said he was a man, but that's all that he was. They, they believed that he kept the law perfectly, and so they stressed obeying the law as a way to attain salvation. They also insisted on circumcision as a prerequisite to salvation. So you can see why many people believe that they're just kind of an offshoot of the Judaizers. Anyway, wanted to clarify that. And now you have one more heretical group to add to your file of heretics. <laughs> Tonight we continue with the Apostolic Fathers. And we're going to start with the Epistle of Barnabas. The Epistle or Letter of Barnabas. Written about 130 A.D. Some people push the date as late as, one, as, late as 150 A.D. Again, these dates are movable. Uh, they did not have Microsoft Word where they could put the date in there. Or you could see when the file was created. So we're kind of guessing. It's around 130 A.D., uh, maybe as late as 150. The Epistle of Barnabas was originally given this title because people thought the guy who wrote the epistle was Paul's friend Barnabas that you can read about in the book of Acts, uh, the son of encouragement. But it soon uh, came to, they came to realize that this letter was not written by that Barnabas, but the name stuck, and that's just kind of how church history works. They just couldn't seem to shake the title of the epistle of Barnabas, even though it wasn't written by anyone named Barnabas. And that's just how history works. You can't control what people say about you after you're dead. Mm-hmm. That's just life. Even so get over alive. it. Even when you're alive, you can't control it. You're absolutely right. Uh, I think there's some back there. Is there a sheet back there? Yeah. 
So in this letter, Barnabas is writing to Christians. He's writing to churches and reminding them of some Christian virtues. And he reminds them that there are two ways to live. What Barnabas will call the way of light and the way, and I love this, the way of the black one. How he would describe evil or darkness or the devil. Barnabas is writing and saying there are only two ways to live as a human being. The way of light, to live according to the way of light, or to live according to the way of the black one. Here's a sample of Barnabas. He says the way of light is this. If any man desire to journey to the appointed place, that is to heaven, let him be zealous in his works. Therefore, the knowledge given to us of this kind that we may walk in it is as follows. Thou shalt love thy maker. Thou shalt fear thy creator. Thou shalt glorify him who redeemed thee from death. Thou shalt be simple in heart and rich in spirit. Thou shalt not join thyself to those who walk in the way of death. Thou shalt hate all that is not pleasing to God. Thou shalt hate all hypocrisy. Thou shalt not desert the commandments of the Lord. But the way of the black one is crooked and full of cursing. For it is the way of death with eternal punishment. And in it are the things that destroy their soul. Idolatry, frowardness, arrogance of power, hypocrisy, double-heartedness, adultery, murder, robbery, pride. And Barnabas goes on to list more and more and more of the ways of the black one. But the important thing about the epistle of Barnabas is this, because we all kind of know this in general. Yeah, there's a way. You can either walk in the way of the light or the way of darkness or the way of the black one. The important thing about the epistle of Barnabas is that he, it gives us an idea how early Christians dealt with the problem of the Old Testament. Now that may sound strange to you that the Old Testament was a quote-unquote problem, but imagine if the only copy of the scriptures that you had was the Old Testament. For the average Christian back then, you didn't have a copy of any of the Gospels. You didn't have a copy of Romans. You didn't have a copy of Galatians or Hebrews or Philippians. The New Testament had not been collected at this point and printed so that you could carry it around. All that you had to read during your quiet time as you drank your coffee was the Old Testament. This is how it was for believers in the second century, even on up into the third century. And so as a pastor or as a Sunday school teacher, you are preaching to and you are teaching a Christian congregation. You're teaching a Christian church with the Old Testament. And so the problem was, how in the world do you preach Jesus from the Old Testament? What are you going to say about Jesus? What are you going to say about following Jesus as a disciple out of the Old Testament? I mean, you can talk about how Israel roamed the wilderness for 40 years, but what are you going to say about Jesus? You can talk about Solomon's temple. You can talk about King Jeroboam. But what are you going to say about Jesus of Nazareth from the Old Testament? What are you going to say about Christ? What are you going to say about Christianity without the help of Ephesians? Or without the help of the Gospel of John? Or without the help of the book of Hebrews? What are you going to say about Jesus from the prophet Ezekiel? What are you going to tell your church about Jesus from 2 Chronicles, for crying out loud? Or even the Song of Solomon? Mm -hmm. This is what pastors and this is what Sunday school teachers faced in the 2nd century. So the epistle of Barnabas is an example of how Christians dealt with the very Jewish Old Testament. Christians in the second century were dealing with the problem of how you communicate truth to Christians while you using a very Jewish text. See, they read all of the stories in the Old Testament. They read the poetry. They read the laws. And for them, there, they found Jesus. Because this is the only Bible that they had. Well, I mean, so what's wrong with that? We want to do that, Right? We want to preach Jesus from the Old Testament. We want to find Jesus in the Old Testament. 
Right? This is in line with Article 1 of Dallas Theological Seminary's doctrinal statement where I went and got my master's in theology. Article 1 of Dallas Seminary's doctrinal statement says this. We believe that all the scriptures center about the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and work in his first and second coming. And hence that no portion, even of the Old Testament, is properly read or understood until it leads to him. They're saying no, DTS is saying no portion of the Old Testament is properly read or understood until it leads you to Jesus. And if you don't believe them, maybe you'll believe Jesus. Because what did he say in John 5.39? The scriptures bear witness about me. What did Jesus do post-resurrection? What's one of the first things Jesus did after he came back from the dead? He had a Bible study with some disciples on the way to Emmaus. And what did he talk about? How the law and the prophets testified. How the law and the prophets testified. Let me walk you through the Old Testament and I will show you I'm all over the place. So at the very foundation of Christianity is this understanding that the Old Testament is actually not a Jewish text. It is a Christian text. Think about that. The Old Testament was written for the edification of Christians. Let me say that again. The Old Testament was written for the edification of Christians. Now, of course, it was written for God's people then. Okay, I'm not saying it wasn't. But where do I get this idea that the Old Testament was written for the edification of Christians? Romans. Romans? Yeah, exactly. Romans 15. Romans 15. Great, Mike. It says this. For whatever was written in our former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Where else does Paul say something? Remember 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul's talking about all these events that happened in the Old Testament? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 11, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. They were destroyed for grumbling. Let that sink in. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so the Old Testament then was written for Christians, Paul says. The Old Testament was written for you. So the Old Testament was actually written for Christians. And this is Barnabas's understanding when he writes his letter. He writes this very, very long letter explaining how the Jewish scriptures are full of Christianity. And so Barnabas is teaching the second century church that they need to keep the Old Testament because the Old Testament is actually distinctively Christian. And so how did Barnabas teach the Old Testament? Barnabas used what is called an allegorical interpretation. The allegorical interpretation of Scripture. Gives us, Barnabas gives us insight into the allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament. So what is the allegorical method of interpretation? It's a method of interpreting the Bible that says that truth is communicated through a symbolic understanding of a passage's literal meaning. So truth is communicated to us by symbolically taking these very basic things that are happening and try to pull out some spiritual truth out of that. I'll say it again. It's a method of interpreting the Bible that says truth is communicated through a symbolic understanding of a passage's literal meaning. For example, in the book of Ruth, what happens when there's this exchange when Boaz says, I'm going to purchase uh, Ruth and the land and be the kinsman and redeemer? Does anybody know the custom they had back then, what they would do? Did they go down to the, and get it notarized? Here was their custom, okay? When there's a transaction of land or a transaction where someone was becoming the redeemer, you would remove your sandal 
and give it to the person. Now, why did they do that? They did that because they were saying that I no longer have ownership of the ground where my sandal rests upon. So you get my sandal, which means you now own the land, right? Here's how it's said in Ruth 4, verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Okay, so an allegorical interpretation of Ruth 4.7 would probably go something like this. The sandal represents the sinner before he came to know Jesus. And Satan has to give you back to Jesus like the man who hands his sandal over to another man. And so Jesus is the man who receives the sandal and now you belong to Jesus. I don't agree with that interpretation, okay? But that's the allegorical method. I don't know if anyone has ever come to that conclusion in the book of Ruth, but I wouldn't be surprised. That's probably what they would say. These spiritual truths are being communicated through a symbolic understanding of a literal meaning. The literal sandal being traded is supposed to just say, hey, now you own the land. But for someone who has an allegorical understanding of Scripture, they're going to say the sandal being traded is a picture of you leaving the kingdom of darkness and being transferred into the kingdom of light. And now Jesus owns you. That's how an allegorical interpretation of Scripture works. I've even heard it said that in the book of Esther, Haman... The bad guy is represented as evil, as our sinfulness, our flesh. And when, when Haman is hung on the gallows, that's what we should do. We should mortify the flesh. We should put sin to death. Now, is that what Esther is about? No, but that's the allegorical interpretation. You know who did this? One of my heroes did this. Charles Spurgeon did this with Judges 4. I don't mean to throw him under the bus because I, I told you, as we look at church history, we don't want to criticize these people because they can't change. Charles Spurgeon cannot change how he interpreted Judges 4. So I don't want to throw him under the bus. I have great respect for him. He's one of my heroes. But his interpretation of Judges 4 is sloppy. In Judges 4, when Jael drives the tent peg through the temple of Sisera, that is not a picture of the mortification of sin, which is what Spurgeon preached in his sermon titled Sin Slain, preached on July 9, 1860. Now, there are plenty of passages that talk about putting the sin to death, right? Romans 6, Colossians 3, but Judges 4 is not one of them. It gives me great hope that even someone like Spurgeon, you know, isn't perfect. He, he can improve on his sermons. But Paul barely used the allegorical method. He, Paul does in Galatians 3. He does. We can talk about that later. I was hoping no one would bring that up. <laughs> but it's scripture, and Paul's allegorical method of it uh, is in scripture, and I think is valid. Galatians 3, where he talks about, uh, in Galatians 4, Sarah and Hagar. He uses it in an allegorical interpretation, but he's being inspired by the Spirit. And so Paul is able to look back and do that. But I wouldn't recommend the allegorical interpretation of Scripture for anyone because it can lead you down some really weird rabbit trails. And you might just think, oh, I think that passage was just saying the guy was taking the sandal off. Okay? Any other questions? Okay, moving on. If you have questions, raise your hands. Good point, Don. I really was hoping no one would bring that up because like, it's going to open up a whole other can of work. <laughs> Go read Galatians and come back with questions and read how Paul uses an allegorical interpretation. But he's inspired by the Spirit, which Barnabas was not in the sense of we're not going to take the epistle of Barnabas as Scripture. Okay, so Spurgeon did this, and it encourages me that, hey, anytime you're preaching, you're not always going to hit a home run and do it perfectly, that we can always learn and grow. So it's encouraging to me. So here's one example. By the way, I hate all my early sermons. I hate most of my sermons now. So if, you, if you're a preacher, you look back and think, oh, my goodness, what, did I say that? So I, I, I understand Spurgeon, and I'm sure he would look back and say, oh, I could have done that better. Here's one example from the epistle of Barnabas to give you a flavor of what his allegorical method looked like. Barnabas said this in the epistle of Barnabas. 
Now, in that Moses said, Ye shall not eat swine, nor an eagle, nor a hawk, nor a crow, nor any fish which has no scales on itself, he included three doctrines in his understanding. And so Barnabas begins to explain his understanding of what Moses meant. You're probably all familiar with the laws in the Old Testament that forbid the Jews from eating certain kinds of food. They are called unclean, right? Well, Barnabas would say that those verses aren't really talking about God prohibiting the Israelites from eating these unclean animals. Barnabas said that each animal represented a certain kind of individual that believers should abstain from. So he says the pig represents men who gather many possessions, but like a pig, after being fed, kind of forgets who fed them. These men forget that it is the Lord who has enabled them to gather many possessions. And for Barnabas, the birds like the eagle and the hawk and the crow, they represent men who swoop in and steal from others and plunder their properties. So for Barnabas, in a very creative way, all right, He's creative. Barnabas, for Barnabas, the commandments in the Old Testament against eating certain kinds of animals were not about that at all. They were about avoiding certain kinds of people. That's the allegorical interpretation. The pig represents the ungrateful person. The birds represent thieves. So we may not agree with Barnabas's allegorical interpretation, and obviously I don't, but... It is better than just throwing the Old Testament away, isn't it? We've got to give Barnabas some credit. At least he's reading the Old Testament. At least he's reading the Mosaic Law. At least he's reading the book of Leviticus, right? How many of us turn to Leviticus to get our warm fuzzies in the morning? Mm -hmm. At least Barnabas is saying, I'm going to go to Leviticus. There's some good stuff there. At least he's reading the Old Testament and teaching from it. At least he, say, he says that it doesn't relate to Christianity. And so I'm curious, how would you teach Jesus from the Old Testament? How would you share the gospel with a co-worker from the Old Testament? What would you say to someone if you're evangelizing and you don't have the Romans road and you're only allowed to use the book of Numbers? How would you bring forth the distinctive teachings of Christianity if you didn't have the Gospel of John or you didn't have the Book of Romans? How would you teach the doctrines of Christianity from 2 Chronicles or Ezekiel? For Barnabas, it was to be done using the allegorical method of interpretation. Again, we may not agree with his method of interpreting the Old Testament but it is better than throwing the Old Testament away, right? That's what the epistle of Barnabas is about. Questions or comments about Barnabas or the allegorical method? Is it true that the previous guys like Tolikar and Ignatius did not use the allegorical method? Uh, they may have. I can't remember my readings in the last few weeks because I've been reading all the Apostolic Fathers and they're long and I'm reading it on my iPhone. I'm sure and I, I want to say they did as well some. Mm -hmm. Um, so, again, they're, they're learning and they're growing um, and using what they have. Yeah, so I think they did. I, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly who did. Okay, moving on. Uh, the next writing of the Apostolic Fathers that we want to look at is called The Shepherd of Hermas. Shepherd of Hermas. This is a weird one. Shepherd of Hermas was written by some guy in Rome in the middle of the second century, around 130 AD. And Hermas is writing to convey a message about this vision that he had received. In this vision that he claimed to receive from God had three parts. It's broken down into these five visions that he has, these 12 commandments that he receives from God, and these 10 parables that he has also received. And it's really weird. Um, Hermas writes all of these down, and really, at the heart of it, he's addressing one big question in there. One big question that jumps out of his writings, anyway, is this. It's a question that was facing many Christians in the second century, and it was this. Once a Christian is baptized, 
Can they be reinstituted into the church if they fall away? Can you bring forgiveness upon a person again after they've been baptized and they sin so wickedly and they walk away from the faith? If someone returns to paganism after being baptized, can you take, take them back again into church fellowship? Now remember, many of the early Christians came from pagan backgrounds, not this Jewish background. Remember, they're going out into all the world. They're going into a predominantly Gentile world with this message. So they don't have this backstory of Jewish understanding of the Old Testament. They're coming from these pagan backgrounds where they worshipped false gods and idols. Where they worshipped at shrines and altars that were dedicated to other gods. They worshipped where they were involved in sacred prostitution where you would go and you could sleep with the prostitute and call it worship. How was worship today? It was great, is what they would say. So, can what do you do if a Christian falls away and goes back to this lifestyle? Can you welcome them back into the church community after they've gone back to their idols? After they've gone back to the temple and they're sleeping with prostitutes again and calling it worship? Can you welcome them back into the Christian community? The very traditional answer floating around Roman churches at the time was this. No. It was a very conservative position. If you were a baptized Christian who had returned to your previous pagan lifestyle, there was no reinstitution back into the church that was available for you. That was the common belief. And so Hermas writes this letter to provide a more liberal option to that question. Can you restore someone who has fallen away? Hermas's answer was yes, but only once. Hermes's answer was more generous and was a gracious response than most in his day. Hermes was such a liberal, wasn't he? <laughs> now, we would probably take issue with their understanding, but we have to go back in time and understand why are they saying these things? Wouldn't they want these people to come back? But to understand why this question arose in the second century, remember what these people came out of. They came out of paganism, worshiping other gods. So the person that you would be sitting next to in church just four months ago had been offering meat to idols, had been sacrificing to idols. The person that you were sitting next to in church just four months ago had been sitting in the amphitheater watching Christians being ripped apart by lions, and that was entertainment to them. They were sleeping with temple prostitutes, and they were calling it worship. This is the world. This is the lifestyle that they left behind when they came to Jesus. And so there was no area of neutrality back then. If you're not with the Christians, then you're with the pagans. It was black and white. It's why Barnabas called the two ways to live, the way of light and the way of the black one. It's because the worship of many gods was actually woven into the fabric of society back then. Everybody worshipped some god or gods. Everyone did. Morality in the ancient world always implied a theology, a belief system. Morality always implied a theology in the ancient world. How you lived implied what you believed and which God you served. Now sadly, in our day, we have split morality from theology, haven't we? So much so that you can abuse your wife and still say, hey, I'm a Christian. You can abuse your children and try to convince us that you believe Christianly. Second century Christians would struggle with this. Second century Christians who came into our time would look around and say, you guys are messed up. The point that churches were making in the second century was this. If you have a moral problem, you have a theological problem. And so if you leave the church community and you enter back into the morality of the pagans, they would say, then we're really suspicious and we wonder 
by going back into them if you've actually embraced the theology of the pagans. If you leave the church community and you enter into the morality of the pagans, then we get really suspicious and we wonder if you have also embraced the theology of the pagans. And so morality and theology were not separated in the early church. If you had an ethical problem, if you had a moral problem, then the second century Christians would say, we're suspicious about your theology. We're suspicious about what you actually believe because your moral life and your life of faith are not that easily separated. And so this is what Christians in Rome were struggling with in the second century and why Hermas shoots off this really long email to them to try to help and guide them. He wants to remind Christians, just like Barnabas did, that there are only two ways to live, the way of light and the way of the black one. Questions or comments about Hermas or paganism in this time? Do you see the struggle that they had, Marianne? Yeah, what I think about is... Idolatry, don't, we live in an idolatrous world. We don't have the golden calves and all this, but we idolize our job, we idolize our status, we idolize yeah. what we have, or, you know. We do, and it, yeah, we do. We, we have our idols, idols, we have our gods. Yeah. I think the thing for us, it's, it's much more convenient now to hide these things, whereas uh-huh. they went out in a very public place and worshiped, and you were like, is that John? Is that John? He just went into the sacred prostitute. You know, it was such it was so visible back then. Not that you couldn't hide your, your sins and your struggles. Whereas ours, I think we tend, they tend to be more private, tend to be more refined. You know, we may not think of them as gods and idols per se, which theirs, it was just a part of their community and you could see it. Don't you but think we it's do. more acceptable now? I think it's, yeah, it's definitely more acceptable. It's, you know, do your own thing and your own idea. We, we see this in our culture today with people struggling with the LGBTQ movement, struggling with the definition of marriage. You see people, you have some pastors saying we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Uh, you have all these things that are surfacing. And so if you plopped a second century Christian in here, in our world, they would say, man... You guys, I can't believe you're even saying that. At least that guy kind of snuck off with the prostitute back there. You're actually saying we don't need the Old Testament? So they're very, they're very similar, uh, just different. Different gods, different idols. Same thing, same human heart. Same thing happening. The same list in Romans 1 after Paul talks about uh, the sin of homosexuality. After that in Romans 1, he lists all these other very clean-cut, refined sins, doesn't he? Like... Gossiping and slander and being ruthless. See, we tend to go to that passage to address sexuality, but we forget to keep reading the rest of the verse, which is things that most of us struggle with. Yeah. So I'm just thinking we're supposed to be a new creature in Christ Jesus and that we grossly use grace to sin. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking even working in Christian schools, blatantly Christian teachers have said they slept around, but they still had to keep up and keep their jobs. I mean, it just even seemed like in the Christian world, we become so lax in what we think should be character in your Christian walk. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and that's why we're looking at the apostolic fathers to be reminded there's the way of light and the way of the black one. There's grace when we forgive, but grace doesn't mean you can live any way that you want to. There's two aspects to grace. It's his unmerited favor, and then it's his unlimited power to live the Christian life. Carl? What was the early church's view of uh, being able to lose your salvation? How did they deal with Hebrews? Did they, I mean, I'm I'm listening to you say they said, once you're out, you're out. Well, Hebrews pretty much says once you're enlightened and partaking of it, you step in. Yeah, they would probably take that. I'm assuming they would take that approach too. Like I said, they said, hey, you can't come back. And then Hermas says, you can come back once. I think they'd probably read passages that say they were uh, among us and then they left and went out among us probably. They're just struggling because it was just such a part of their culture. They're struggling. How do we deal with this? That guy was baptized. He went through, we'll talk next week about what they had to go through. There was preparation for baptism. 
You know, months leading up to you couldn't take the Lord's Supper until you were baptized. There's months of teaching that backlog this. You prepare this guy, and then six months later, he's back at the temple. And so their answer was, you, you can't come back. Now, I think they were wrong, and maybe, maybe if someone came back, they would welcome them. Hermas is saying, you can do it once. But again, you have to realize the Christian testimony and witness is, is connected to this too. Here's a guy who says, I left that. Now I'm over here with the Christians. Now I'm back with the pagans. And they're saying, what are you doing to the witness of our church? So I don't know. I assume like always, there's always been people who think that you can lose your salvation. And, and maybe they thought they had. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It was, it's interesting too in the first, second you know, century how the paganism was tied a lot to the community in the city. Like, we, don't, we want our city to prosper, so let's honor all the gods, of, yeah. especially the, the local deities of the city. And so there was actually some who would worship their pagan gods and also go to church with the Christians, you know, on Sundays. And so they're, they're kind of straddling this line. Mm -hmm. And really what Rome's problem was, was that it's okay to be inclusive, but once you start being exclusive, yeah. and, and you're saying, no, there's only one way. Now you're going to bring wrath upon us from the gods because you're not offering the sacrifices and, you know, you're not, you're not, um, you know, praying to, to this uh, goddess or god. And I, I, I can see that as a problem because it does this, it, it does damage the Christian witness. You know, if we say, if we're saying that Christ is the only way, but yet, even in our day, you know, there's, there's those who would say, I'm a Christian, but I believe there's many ways to God. Yeah. And so how do you defend that in a culture um, without being labeled, you know, um, radical, yeah. and then sort of drawing negative attention on yourself. Yeah, it, it's the struggle of our day. How do we say this book is truth, and I will submit to it, and even if it makes me, it, the Bible should make us uncomfortable, Yeah, you know, because I love me, and I love living for me and my kingdom, and Jesus comes and says, your kingdom and my kingdom are not going to be buddies. Mm -hmm. My kingdom wins. Uh, right? So it's a challenge to me. Every time I open the word, I have to humble myself and the spirit is speaking and addressing. And so it's how do we deal with that in a bigger scale? I think at the very least, we need to say in our church culture, we need to love one another, walk and disciple people through this and teach them. But still, you're always going to have people, I think, in every church body that kind of straddle that fence. And all you can do is pray and try to teach them the best that we can. Obviously, we want to love everyone. We don't want to be jerks about truth. There's too many Christians who are jerks about their theology. And we don't want to do that. We want to come alongside and say, help, tell me what you think. Why do you, where do you get that? Let's come back to God's word. What does it say? Let's humble ourselves and, and model repentance before them. But it's really no different. The only difference between us and them is that theirs was more visible. It was a part of the culture out there, like you said, connected to the city. We don't want to bring the wrath of the gods upon us. You Christians need to come over here and worship this god. We'll come over there and worship your god too. And it's a little different in that, but still kind of the same. It's like nobody has a problem if you call yourself a Christian as long as you give equal, you know, you validate every other belief too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay, moving on. The last of the Apostolic Fathers that we want to look at is something that is called the Didache. The Didache comes from, uh, actually comes from this Greek word, which uh, means teaching. So uh, it was written about 50 to 70 AD. There's some people that kick it back into the second century. Again, these dates, you know, are, are kind of movable sometimes. But what date did you say? Uh, 50 to 70 AD is the earliest date we have that. Some people will push it back. It comes from the Greek word for teaching. The Didache was essentially a manual of church instruction. It was a handbook on how to do church. Separated into three parts. The first part uh, talks about the two ways. So no surprise there that the Didache is picking up on this theme of the way of light and the way of the black one that Barnabas and Hermas were talking about. It's, again, just what we've been talking about. The Didache is writing and saying, there's, there's, this is what they're dealing with with their culture and their time. There's two ways to live. It's black and white. You either walk the way of light or you walk the way of the black one. You can't straddle both of those things. So the Didache is in keeping with 
what Barnabas and Hermas had been talking about, about light and darkness and truth and error. It's reminding the Christians at the time that you're always associated with one of these two ways. There's no middle ground. Uh, so the Didache essentially is written to teach the early church how to be distinctively Christian in a pagan world. How do you be distinctively Christian in a pagan world? So it's very instructive for us too as well. Number two, second part of it is kind of this list of how-tos. Very practical how-tos in the church. How do you worship What does your worship service look like? How do you baptize someone? What do you do? What kind of water do you do? We'll look at that next week uh, or the week after when we meet. How to fast? What days do you fast on? How to conduct the Lord's Supper? What do you do? How do you treat, treat another church leader or pastor who comes to you from another town, from another church? How do you treat them? How do you show them hospitality when they visit? So it's all this kind of how to and what to do these things. And then the third part... Um, is focusing on eschatology, the the end times, and talking about uh, because Jesus is returning again, as Paul would say, what kind of people should we then be? How should we live? And so there's a brief word at the end on eschatology about making sure we're walking in the way of the light, not the way of the black one, not the way of darkness. It's reminding uh, Christians and churches that we are primarily defined by our hope, Namely, our hope and our belief in the resurrection of the body that we will experience resurrection one day just like Jesus did. And so we're going to come back to a little bit more of the Didache in a couple weeks and look at baptism and the Lord's Supper and how they prepared people and things like that. But moving on, though, and we're going to come back to it next time, I want to talk about the doctrine of the apostolic fathers. Uh, And the first thing that we need to understand is that there was no official doctrinal statement or theology that was floating around in the early church in the first and second centuries. There was no Westminster Confession of Faith. There was no 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. There was no 2000 Baptist Faith and Message. There was nothing official like that yet. And so the creeds and the councils of church history were still a couple of centuries away. And so there was no official doctrine or systematic expression of God and and who he is. But what we do see in their writings is a very classical understanding of the Trinitarian God. They speak over and over again of the Trinity. They speak of the Father. They speak of the Son. They speak of the Holy Spirit. They speak of the three persons in the Godhead and how they are distinct and yet they are one. But they do not have a more formal wording like we might have today. For instance, they do not have some formal wording about the Trinity that has become common in our time. Uh, What would you say? What's kind of the phrase that people say when we talk about the Trinitarian God that we serve? What do we say? What's one of the the kind of uh, catchphrases that we say? We believe God. We believe in one God. What? Eternally existing in three persons. Okay, That's kind of how we would sum up the Bible's teaching on the Trinity. We believe in one God eternally existing in three persons. They didn't have something as formalized like that. They didn't have something as formalized like our statement of faith here at Grace. Which says, point B under the Trinity... This is what we we believe here at Grace. We believe that there is one living and true God, eternally existing in three persons. See, there's that catchphrase. That these are equal in every divine perfection and that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, and redemption. We believe in one true and living God, Eternally existing in three persons. They're equal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're equal. But they execute distinct and yet harmonious offices in the works of creation, providence, and redemption. So the apostolic fathers in the early church didn't have something formalized like our statement of faith on the Trinity. But you still see it in their writings still well-developed and expressed in their writings. They speak of the Trinity, but not in some formalized way like a creed or a confession or a statement of faith. 
They actually speak more like the, ba- the Bible does, using biblical language and using verses from the Bible. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? They use a lot of verses, a lot of terminology that's found in the Bible. Now, the Bible, of course, does not use the phrase, one God eternally existing in three persons, right? Ephesians 7.1 does not say there's one God eternally existing in three persons. Because there is no Ephesians 7.1, right? It ends after Ephesians 6. It doesn't say that. Does the Bible use the phrase, one God eternally existing in three persons? No. But is it true? Yes. Yes. Does the Bible use the term Trinity? No. No. But is it true? Yes. You betcha. So even though the Apostolic Fathers have not developed a systematic presentation of the Trinitarian God of Christianity, we still see that they believed what would one day come into this systematic expressions like the Nicene Creed or the Westminster Confession of Faith. They spoke of the Trinity the way the Bible does, using those verses, which isn't a bad way to speak at all. So a more systematic presentation of the doctrine of the Trinitarian God of Christianity is going to have to wait for a heretic by the name of Arius to pop his little ugly head up in 325 A.D., We have to wait for Arius to pop his head up. And then in reaction to him, the church will gather to write a more formalized, systematic expression of the doctrine of God known as the Nicene Creed or the Creed of Nicaea. And when it comes to the doctrine of Christ, looking at Jesus, the systematic expression is the same. The doctrine of the person and nature of Christ is going to have to wait for a more formalized expression in the middle of the 5th century when the heretics Apollinarius, Eutyches, and Nestorius raise their ugly heads. And in response to these three knuckleheads, at the 4th Ecumenical Council at Chalcedon, the church is going to formalize a more systematic expression of the doctrine of Christ, of, of his humanity and his deity They're going to highlight the unity of those two natures. They're going to highlight the unity of Jesus' humanity and his deity. And they're going to do that with the Creed of Chalcedon or the Chalcedonian Creed, which we're going to look at in time. Now, remember what I said last time as we talk about the doctrine of Christ. It's not enough to say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. That's not enough to say. We have to, in the same sentence and in the same breath, say that these two natures are united in one person. Because heretics sometimes can affirm that Jesus is 100% God or 100% man. And so the key of what's happening at Chalcedon is they're going to point out that these two natures, God and man, in the person of Jesus have been united and cannot be separated. We must in the same sentence and in the same breath, as we say 100% God, 100% man, we must say these two natures are united in one person. United in his incarnation, separated at his death, right? His body and spirit anyway were separated at his death. Uh, His spirit and body were pulled apart. Uh, but then reunited again his body and spirit in resurrection. So Jesus is 100% God, 100% man with those two natures united together in one person. This is classic, historic, orthodox Christology. That's what the church will wrestle with in the middle of the 5th century. But even before this, we still see a robust understanding of the two natures of Christ in the Apostolic Fathers. Because in the second century, Christians are emphasizing this about Jesus. They're saying there is a divine reality and there is a human reality in that one single person known as Jesus. And so Ignatius of Antioch, who is arguably the preeminent theologian among the apostolic fathers and who we looked at last week. Ignatius said this about Jesus in his letter to the Ephesian church. He said, there is one physician who is both flesh and spirit, born and yet not born, who is God 
in man, true life in death, both of Mary and of God, first passable and then impassable, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Ignatius explains that Jesus was both flesh and spirit. Remember, human beings are made up of of two parts, right? Human beings are made up of a body and a spirit. This is the material part, and this is the immaterial part. Human beings are made up of two parts, the body and the spirit. And that's what Ignatius is saying here. He is both of flesh and he is of spirit. He had a body and he had a soul or a spirit. Those words are used interchangeably. And so was Jesus a human being with a body and with the spirit? Yes. And since he was a human being, he's made up of these two parts. That's what Ignatius is saying when he is saying he is both of flesh and spirit. But he also says that Jesus was born and yet not born. He has always existed and yet he was born as a baby. He's eternal and yet he could nurse at his mother's breast. Right? He was of God and he was also of Mary, born of a woman. But then Ignatius says he is first passable and then impassable. And so what does that mean? Passable means that Jesus was able to die. Was Jesus able to die? Yeah, and he did. But Ignatius goes on to say but he is also impassable. Remember what we talked about this morning? About insecurity. When you, Anytime you put I am or I in on the beginning of a word, it negates it. It says it's not. So Jesus is also not able to die. God is immortal, which means he is not mortal. And so Ignatius is saying that Jesus is passable. He's able to die. But then he's not able to die. So as a man, as a human being, Jesus could die, and he did die, but as God, he could not die because God cannot die because God is eternal, right? So even though there was no full-blown systematic expression of the deity and humanity of Jesus and the apostolic fathers, we still see that they held to an orthodox understanding of the person of Jesus. And we'll continue, Lord willing, next time looking at the sacraments, looking at baptism and the Lord's Supper in the Didache. Just a reminder again, no class next week. So on August 18th, we'll come back and look at the Didache in a little more detail. Look at the early church, how they understood baptism. Uh, what did discipleship look like as they prepared people for baptism and as they prepared them to take the Lord's Supper? And then we'll continue looking more at Trinitarian worship and how their understanding of the Trinity even shaped their understanding of baptism and how they prepared people for baptism. Okay, questions or comments on the Didache or the doctrine of the Apostolic Fathers or Christology or how human beings are made up of two parts? Questions or comments? Number two, spirit. And what is the last part? Uh, Immaterial. Immaterial. Okay, thank you. I can read that. You well, <laughs> only because I know what it says. But if you drop me in this room right now, I'd say I have no idea what that says. <laughs> only because I wrote it. Immaterial. So we're made up of a material part and then an immaterial part. And so what happens to us at death for a Christian, our body goes where? Down into the ground. Mm-hmm. Right? And then where does our spirit go? Our spirit goes to be with Jesus. And then, at resurrection, which is what the, uh, uh, the Didache is going to highlight at the end, at the end, our spirit and our body meet again in resurrection, never to be separated again. So, question, let's say this is a guy named Bob. Where is Bob when he dies? Is this Bob? No. Yeah, this is Bob. Okay. When you, when there's a, you know, we have funerals and sometimes open casket and they say Bob's not here and I'm like, yeah, he is. He's right there. I can see him. 
him. Bob is here. That is Bob. If somebody came down there and started pouring Coca-Cola on top of a body in a casket, you would say, what are you doing to Bob? Right? Because that body is Bob. But Bob is also with Jesus. A part of Bob is also with Jesus. And the hope of the Christian faith is that when Jesus comes back again, or if we're alive and when he comes back, we'll just be changed and our body will be glorified in that moment. But the hope of the gospel is that for any Christian who dies, our body and our spirit will be resurrected again. Our body and our spirit will be joined together again in resurrection. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he kind of says that up here, we're not really content yet. We love being with Jesus Our spirit loves being with Jesus, but he says, we're longing to be further clothed. Paul is saying, we're absolutely happy to be here, right? But he's saying, we realize this isn't everything. There's a part of me back down there in the ground that's awaiting Jesus' resurrection. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we're actually longing to be further clothed, longing to be reunited with our bodies again, where we can then walk on the new earth. Because what happened in Genesis chapter 2? Adam came out of the dirt, right? And then what did God do? He fashioned him, got his hands dirty. What did God then do with this lump of flesh? Breathe spirit into him, right? And then when Adam dies, where does he go again? Back down to here. Now, when he came out of the ground, what was Adam supposed to be doing? Ruling over the ground, right? Adam's supposed to be ruling, walking and ruling. What's the appropriate relationship between Adam, human beings, and the ground? Is what? Dominion. Dominion. We come above it. We're above the ground, exercising dominion, serving the Lord. What does death do? Death puts us back down here where we don't belong. We don't belong in the ground, do we? And so Genesis 2, Adam coming out, Genesis 2, 7, is just resurrection all over again. In Genesis 2, 7, Adam comes out of the ground. The spirit is breathed into him. He rolls over the ground. But death puts Adam's body back here, puts Adam's spirit back up here again. And in the resurrection, Adam's body is going to come out again, be reunited with his spirit, and rule over the new earth forever. And that's why we hate death. Right? We hate death. Because death puts us where we don't belong. Death rips us apart. You were not made to be ripped apart. You were made to be body and spirit united together forever. And death comes along and says, I'm going to put part of you over there. Okay, part of you went to be with Jesus. But I got part of you and you're going into the ground. That's why we should hate death. We should grieve at funerals. Yes, people are with Jesus. But we should still grieve death. Right? I don't want a celebration of life. Mm-hmm. I want people to grieve because I'm not here. I want my little girls to grieve because their daddy's gone. I want them to embrace in time. Yeah, daddy's with Jesus, but I want them to grieve and say, look what Adam did to my daddy. And then say, but you know what? Jesus is going to raise him one day. And his spirit's going to come back into his body. And we're going to walk the new earth and have tea parties forever. I don't care if my girls live to be 50. We're having tea parties on the new earth. Okay, questions or comments about any of this? I went off on one of my favorite tangents. And then we'll receive our new body at that time. We have a new body when Christ comes again. When Jesus comes back again, those who are alive will be transformed instantly. Those who are with Jesus will come with him, and their spirits will be reunited with their bodies to be with him on the new earth. How about a new body? Yeah, a new body. Like your body will come out new. So even if if you have been... uh, Oh, shoot. What's the word? Uh, cremated. Uh-huh. And your ashes are scattered in the ocean, and now they're who knows where. <laughs> Jesus is so powerful. He's going to bring it all together, and your spirit's going to come back, and you're going to get that new body that will never sin again and never get sick and never get tired, and it's going to be glorious. This is the hope, and this is what the Didache at the very end is talking about. So we have this hope. What kind of people should we be? But we're waiting for Jesus to come back. We should honor him and live for him and walk in the way of light now. But our hope is in resurrection. So we're going to recognize one another. I believe we will. 
So I'm wondering if we're going to look similar, like if we're, you know. Yeah. That, you know, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. At what age will it be? I have no idea. I have no idea. Wayne Grudem says 21. Wayne Grudem says 21. I like that. Uh, 21 is good. I want to go back to be 21. <laughs> no, I would like to look like us. Oh, yeah. 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 It does I, make a difference. Somehow we'll be able to understand and know. Yeah, that matters. Lots of, lots of questions that we have. Um, but it'll be great. It'll be great. So Jesus is going to... He's in the process of making everything new now, which is even what we're doing here at Grace. Is he's making things new in one day that's going to culminate when he returns and we get to be with him forever. So, somebody pray for us as we close. Dear Father, we thank you for all the work that Benji's doing to, mm -hmm. to teach us, Lord, about our church and, and the history of it, how it developed, and the things that we should learn from them. Lord, we just ask your blessing upon each and every person here as they drive home and keep them safe. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Next week, August 11th, uh, no class, mid-year business meeting barbecue chicken dinner, and a report from the Navajo uh, youth trip. So thank you.